Hello. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. We hope that you will be encouraged and it builds your faith. Thanks for listening. If you have your copy of God's Word tonight, if you'll turn to the book of Ezra, chapter 1. Ezra, chapter 1. And I started a series uh, a couple weeks ago called The Rapture Ready Church. And so I'm going to be preaching a series of messages uh, really, that have to do with preparation, preparing ourselves, and maturely preparing ourselves, uh, not only to, uh, to be a church that's ready for the return of the Lord, but a church that's, that is equipped to occupy until he comes. And so uh, we have been talking about uh, 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 the rapture of the church is coming soon, and I'm going to get into that. And I shared with you the last couple of weeks what I feel like is going on, and I really believe that the spirit of Nimrod, uh, is, which is a spirit of lawlessness, has really been released into this nation. And, and we need to pray, to ask God to give us the ability to break the spirit of Nimrod. You say, what is the spirit of Nimrod? Nimrod uh, was uh, a ruler uh, who was the son of Ham, or the grandson of Ham, uh, who was a, the son of Noah. His father was Cush. Uh, his his uh, great-grandfather was Noah. And his great-great-great-grandfather was Enoch. And uh, some believe that uh, he is a descendant of Enoch, that his Noah's wife was the daughter of Enoch. And so Nimrod knew, knew the things of God, but he chose to go a different path. And so he began to, uh, uh, we all know in Genesis 11, he built the Tower of Babel. And out of that, he, 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 he settled many Babylonian cities that eventually became cities of Babylon, strong cities of Babylon. Uh, he is the father of Nineveh, the father of Babylon itself. Uh, he is the... Um, uh, and many cities such as Babel and others that he had established, which was rooted out of a spirit of rebellion. The whole Tower of Babel was about a spirit of rebellion. They go against what God had asked them to do. God said, I want you to, uh, I want you to uh, scatter uh, as nations into the world. And Nimrod said, no, we are not going to scatter. We're going to gather and God said, and when they gathered, Nimrod said, not only are we going to gather, we're going to do things our way. We're going to build a tower to God. We're going to have our own religion. And uh, the, he decided to have his own religion. He decided to put his name on it and not give God credit for it. And the Bible says God confused their language, and they scattered and began to through all the nations. And my point was to you, God always gets what God wants. And God always does what he sets out to do. And uh, uh, I've never, you know, one of the things that, uh, a prayer that I've always prayed, I, I've done street ministry for many years, and one of the things I've always prayed, and many times, even when I was a young preacher, that's how I, where I learned to preach, that's probably why I sweat so much and sometimes get loud, is because I learned to preach on the street. And, uh, but the times that I preached, uh, one of our prayers, even in going in outreach and preaching on the street, one of our prayers was, is that God, that you would confuse the language of the enemy. You would not let the enemy unify against what you're doing and what you want to accomplish. 
How many know the enemy will always try to disrupt what God wants to do? And so when we were at CHOP, we would go up in the first half hour or the first hour. We would walk around the six city blocks that were under siege in Seattle. We would walk and we would pray, and that's what we'd pray. God confused their language. God confused their plans. God let the enemy not know what he is doing. Let him trip over himself and expose himself. Let him be revealed. Let your glory be seen in the midst of this lawlessness and chaos. And how many know that when faithful people pray, even in the midst of the toughest circumstances, God will show up and confuse your enemy. And God had done it many times in the scripture out of faithfulness. And so, but we want to be a rapture-ready church. The spirit of Nimrod is a spirit of confusion. Uh, It is running through this nation. Confusion is running through this nation. People don't even know who they are. And I told you Sunday, if you don't know who you are, then you don't know how to fight for the future. Because you don't, if you don't know where you've come from or what, who you are in Christ, then you don't know what to fight for. And so we're going to be a rapture-ready church that's ready to do the work of the Lord. I want to talk a little bit tonight, and I want to go here to the book of Ezra, but I want to talk about the work of God is never finished. A rapture-ready church understands that the work of God is never finished. The work of God is always ongoing until the return of the Lord. And I want to uh, get into this tonight. You know, every great empire that has ever existed has fallen. Back in uh, 146 uh, A.D., the Roman general, Scipio, He climbed up the mountains to overlook the city of Carthage in North Africa when the Romans had gone in to invade Carthage. They had had the uh, city of Carthage under siege for several years. They surrounded the city and they cut everything off on the outside of the city in order to overcome uh, the city of Carthage in North Africa. The siege began with 700,000 people in the city, but by the time the Romans had broke through and had sieged and taken over the city, fighting street to street, they broke through, the city ended up only having 500,000 survivors, and Rome took it over. But one of the great Greek writers wrote this about Scipio. He said he climbed up on a hill, and he watched the battle as his soldiers went from city to or went from street to street, hand-to-hand combat on the streets. And when his army had finished and came back to the center and set the city on fire, he overlooked, the writer says, that began to see Scipio begin to weep. And the reason he was weeping, he should have been rejoicing in victory, but the, the writer says the reason he was weeping and had burst into tears is that he saw the beginning of the destruction of the Roman Empire by what he saw. Every empire has fallen. Carthage fell, Rome fell, Babylon fell, uh, Assyria fell, the Mesopotamian Empire fell, uh, the French under Napoleon had fell, Mesopotamia under Alexander the Great had fell, Hitler and the Third Reich had fallen, Great Britain had fallen under the great British kings, and like Scipio, maybe we standing from afar, look across our nation and maybe see that we know that there's something that's not right in our nation 
And if God doesn't intervene, we have no idea what might happen to this nation in the next century. If God doesn't intervene, if God doesn't show up, we could see maybe even the fall or the destruction of America. But I can tell you that the work of God is never more important in the hour we live than in the hour we live in right now. And that we must serve our generation like Noah served his generation. We must serve our generation with faithfulness. And we must serve our generation so that the next generation can pick up the baton and serve God after us. But a rapture-ready church is a church that's willing to pick up the work of the Lord and say the work of the Lord is never finished until he comes. And pass the baton on to the next generation. Here in the book of Ezra, it's interesting, as we begin to look at this here in Ezra, when you look at the history of Israel, and we look at Ezra chapter 1, you see the end, you see the fall of Judah at the end of the book of Chronicles. You see, most people believe that Ezra wrote the book of Chronicles. We see the end of the fall of Judah. We see that there has been three sieges that have happened and that uh, four falls of Judah and Israel. In 722, the ten tribes of the north were taken over uh, by the Assyrians and were taken over. And then later, Judah falls to Babylon in 605 under Jehoiakim and the temple is ransacked. Uh, by Babylon, the city comes under siege. They carry away the nobles. Daniel was among those that was carried away. Jeremiah at that time had been writing in Jerusalem, and he had been writing. Some believe that he had escaped to Egypt. And Daniel at the time began his ministry and began to write in the rule of Babylon. A second invasion came to Israel in 597, and the same thing happened. They ravaged the temple. They carried off the remainder of the people back to Babylon again, and another invasion in 586. At that time, Ezekiel was prophesying, and he was prophesying during that time. And so uh, in 586, at the time of, of that burning of the temple and that sieging of Israel, that Nebuchadnezzar had taken sea salt and thrown it all over the city so that the city would not grow back. There would be no more fruit in Jerusalem that it would never grow back again. He also carried away people. At that time, Jeremiah was writing the book of Lamentations at that time. And it was at this time, most scholars believe that Jeremiah, in this last invasion, had taken the Ark of the Covenant and had hidden it somewhere in Egypt. That that was the last scene of the Ark of the Covenant in Scripture. We do not uh, know where it ended up or even where it is today. And so it was not included in uh, the rebuilding of this temple in Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, nor was it included in Herod's temple. Um, but we see that now, all of a sudden, the Ark of the Covenant is missing. Isaiah began to prophesy during this time, and he began to prophesy, or not this time, but he had prophesied earlier that in this time there would be a time of prophecy that would come forth, as well as Jeremiah that would prophesy there would be a time after captivity, after 70 years, the children of Israel would be allowed to go back into the land. And Jeremiah 25 prophesied that after 70 years of captivity, that they would be allowed to go back into the land. Isaiah, 150 years before Cyrus lived, 
prophesied the fact that there would be a man named Cyrus who would be who would live, and he prophesied that and said that he would be the ruler that would allow the children of Israel to return back into their land. Isn't it amazing how God can prophesy something 150 years before it even happens? What a powerful, powerful scripture. So this is where Israel is in this time of Ezra. I want to read two passages of scripture, and then we're going to get right into a couple of things I want you to see tonight. Look at verse 1 of Ezra chapter 1. It said, Now in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, and it was this time, listen, Cyrus was told about the prophecy of Jeremiah. When he was told about this prophecy of Jeremiah, the Spirit of the Lord began to stir up this king who was ungodly. Isn't that powerful? How God moves the hearts of kings. And so he was stirred up and he made a proclamation to allow the children of Israel to return back to Jerusalem. And that's a powerful, powerful thing how God, we know God puts his hand upon the hands of all those that rule and that his hand is upon the rulers of our world that we live in. And so he began to let uh, the children of Israel return. Ezra chapters 1 through 6 is a picture of a man named Zerubbabel who would lead the first wave of children of Israel back into the land. He would lead them back to Jerusalem. He would lead them back there. And uh, the first six chapters speak of him doing that. Between chapters 6 and 7, there's a law. There is a a five-decade law or six-decade law in the time uh, where nothing happens. And then in chapter 7, we see a man by the name of Ezra leads a second wave of the children of Israel back into uh, Jerusalem. Now, during the middle of chapter 6 and chapter 7, in that 60-year law, the Persians overcome and take over uh, and become a world power. And they became a world power. And what happens is you have the story of Esther that falls in between chapter 6 and chapter 7 of Ezra. And so this time period between, you have a beauty queen who rescues a nation and rescues the Jews. And there's a reason for that. Isn't it amazing? God's timing is always perfect. I mean, even when you think in the course of history, how perfect God's timing is in people's lives. Ezra leads back a second group to rebuild the altar. And then 12 years later, Nehemiah leads another group back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And so that is the the history, the point of where we are in 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 this book. And I wanted to set that up for you as we went forward. But I want you to see something. I've never seen this before in reading Ezra and reading uh, all of this, these prophecies. We know Cyrus had released them. But look at verse 5, if you would, of Ezra 1. It says something very powerful. It says, Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin. Of Judah and Benjamin. Now think about that for a moment. Judah and Benjamin. Of the houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites. And it said, with all whose spirits God had moved. 
and arose to go and build the house of the Lord, which was in Jerusalem. Now, God moves on Cyrus the king, and then God moves on his people. Isn't that amazing? God moves on the authority of the land first, and then he moves on the people second. Y'all hear what I'm saying? God moves on the head of the people first, and then he moves on the people second. And he just don't move on the people, but he moved on two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Why are they significant? Because Judah is the line in which Christ comes through, and Judah is the line of praise and worship. And so Judah represents worship. Judah always led the children of Israel in battle with worship. Judah always led the children of Israel in every battle at every time. It was, the, it was those that were of the tribe of Judah that were those who led the songs. It was the tribe of Judah that led David back up into the temple on Psalms 24 when they began to lead the, 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 uh, uh, the ark back up into uh, Jerusalem when it had been missing and David brought it back. It was the tribe of Judah that led the choruses, that led them back. But then it said the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin was the tribe in which of the religious and civil authority of the children of Israel came through. Matter of fact, Paul, the apostle Paul, was a Benjaminite. Paul came from the tribe of Benjamin. They were those that wrote the law. They were those that set the law. And so you hear the Spirit of God, first it moves on Cyrus, Then the Spirit of God begins to move on the worship and on the law, those that represent the law, those that represent, that set the righteousness, that sets the order of the tribes. It moves on those two tribes. And then the Bible says, now the Spirit of God also moved upon the priest and the Levites. And so the Spirit of God began to move And it began to move them to begin and stir them up to want to return back to Jerusalem, to return back to the place of God. Now, this is significant and this is very important because here's here's what's different about the captivity of Babylon and the captivity of, of Persia is that though they were in captivity, they were not slaves. In Egypt, they were slaves, right? But in Babylon and Persia, they were not slaves. They were in captivity, but they were able to, they were able to rise up into the government positions. They were able to rise up and take positions of leadership throughout Persia and the Babylonian Empire, right? Daniel served, he served five emperors. Daniel moved through all of that. They, 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 they took the best of Israel and put them in places of leadership. And so they were able to blend into the Babylonian society. They were able to blend into the Persian society when Persia and the, and the Medes and the Persians became overthrew Babylon and they became the leaders of the world. Even though they were in captivity, uh, they were able to rise up in influence. They were able to rise up Uh, in position. They were able to rise up into a place. And so here now, what you have in the middle of Babylon and the middle of Persia, now the Spirit of God begins to move on the tribes of Israel to go back, but not everybody went back. Not everybody returned. 
Matter of fact, those that returned, there was just a remnant, a one-third of the children of Israel really returned back to Jerusalem. Really, there was just a remnant that returned. And so as I began to think about it, I thought that this, it says, whose spirit, who the God moved upon, the word there, it means to arouse or to awaken. It means to, uh, un- to bring unto unsettled knowledge. You know what revival is? It's coming to the place of unsettled knowledge, of knowing that you're away from God. That's what revival happens, is when the people realize that, and they're, they're awakened that they are away from God. That they need God more ever than they have before. That they need God more than they've ever thought they needed God in the course of their life. Life may be good for some, but their spiritual lives internally may be a wreck. And what happens is when the Spirit of God moves and begins to move on revival, it's an arousing that comes from the inside and an awakening that comes Then we realize how far away from God we really are. That's revival. That's a move of God. And it doesn't matter what the circumstance is or what surrounds us. In other words, we have to pray that God will have an awakening inside his people. That God will have to begin to awaken the worshipers of the kingdom. And begin to awaken the priests of the kingdom. Begin to awaken those that, uh, that rule and those that are leaders in the church. Because the spirit of God moved on them first before it began to move on the people. <laughs> huh? God loved them so much that he moved on Cyrus so that they could have the freedom they needed to do what they needed to do. Come on, y'all be with me. Y'all getting this? We're living in a season when God has moved upon our president who's been faithful and showed faithfulness to the church. And I don't know what kind of man he is personally or where he stands with the Lord. That's between him and God. But I do know this. When he sits and gives a press conference and says that the Holy Spirit of God needs to come back to America, how many would say that's a move of God? That's a move of God. That's God moving on the Cyruses of our world. And when you see that thing happen, you know what comes next? God's going to begin to waken the worshipers and begin to waken the priests and begin to waken the children of God, the leaders. And all of a sudden, what's going to happen? There's going to be an unsettledness in us. And there's going to be an awakening to realize we're further from God than we realized we were from God. How many are ready for a revival? How many are ready for a move of God? How many are ready for God to move on his people again? To do something wonderful in the people of God. I don't know about you, but I'm ready for God to do something special. I'm ready for God to move. To bring an an arousal or an awakening to my spirit. It's the same word used in verse 1 as it's used in verse 5. The same spirit of God that, that, that brought an awakening to Cyrus is the same spirit of God that moved on the church. Hallelujah. I think it's a good sign to see that God, why do you think the enemy is fighting so hard in this nation? Why do you think lawlessness is being released? Why do you think our nation and pockets of our nation, it's as though hell has opened up and vomited on the streets of our nation? Have you not seen division and fighting and difficulty like you've never seen it in your life? 
Have you not seen the anger and the things? It's like the manifestation of the demonic knows that his time is short and knows that God is getting ready to do an incredible move of God and he knows something is happening, something is stirring. The Spirit of God is beginning to stir men and begin. Listen, churches are getting to the place where they're saying, hey, church is not not enough. Just coming to church, just putting some time in, that's not enough anymore. We've got to begin to see transformation in the lives of people. We've got to see people come to Jesus. We've got to see people to come to Christ. We've got to see lives change. We've got to see people discipled. We've got to see an army begin to rise up and begin to confront the, 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 the challenges of this hour. Right? Come on, God wants to do it. God's ready to do it. But there was one problem. Babylon got into the people and Persia got into the people. Babylon broke them and conditioned them. In other words, Babylon changed their nature. Persia seduced their appetite. Babylon changed their nature. What did they do in Daniel chapter 1? Changed their language. Changed what they eat. Taught them Babylonian, you know, taught them Babylonian language. Taught them Babylonian uh, traditions. Changed their names, their identity. Why? Because they were trying to get Judah out of them. They were trying to get God out of them. They were trying to remove any part of God. They were feeding them from the delicacies of the king's table. They were trying to get those that were eunuchs, those that were serving, those that were going to be in power, those that were going to lead the Nebuchadnezzar's empire and lead that empire. They didn't want them to remember Judah. They didn't want them to remember the things of God. They tried to change their nature. I'm telling you that part of the enemy's goal is to change the nature of every generation to follow the Babylonian system of this world and to remove Judah and to remove God and Israel from all of it. There is a systematic thing the enemy is doing. He's trying to remove God from every point of view in America, and they will do it lying They will do it with misrepresentation. They will do it with ugliness. They will do it with a spirit of division. They will do it with fight. And what happens is Babylon Babylon conditioned them, but all of a sudden in come Persia. And Persia came in with its permissiveness, came in with its seductiveness, came in with its ability to seduce and tempt And all of a sudden now their nature's been changed. And now that their nature's been changed, now the seduction begins. Because see, it's not not what the sin that you do. It's understanding the nature in which that sin comes from. And the nature in which that sin comes from comes from the sin nature that we get from Adam. And if we give in to that sin nature, we begin to ignore the Spirit of God and the presence of God, and we no longer can be convicted. We no longer can be moved by God. We can no longer have conviction in our heart because our sin nature takes over, and men begin to live by their nature. And what happens is when they have given themselves into their nature, when they have yielded over into a sin nature, then comes the seduction of the temptation that draws them in to the bondage of whatever that generation is fighting. Babylon 
conditioned them. Persia seduced them. One changed their nature. The other changed their behavior. And what happened was they, become, they started to become, they become prosperous and influential. They became prosperous and influential. In other words, two things came. Because they weren't slaves, they fell into the idea of being comfortable and complacent. Comfortable and complacent. Content with the world that was not even their home. They became content being in a place that God never intended them to be. God's desire for them was to always be in the land of Judah. They became content in the land of Babylon and gave their appetite to the land of Persia. And what happens in our day is that if God doesn't move, part of the apathy that we see in the church is because we have remained in a place of contentment and remained in a place of comfortability and we have yielded to the Babylonian system that has tried to change our nature and we don't see a desire to rebuild the church or to rebuild God's kingdom because we are comfortable where we are. We are complacent where we are. We like where we are in society. We like the prosperity that we have. We like the influence that we have. We become content with that, and we're not interested in packing up and going and building the kingdom of God and bringing a restoration of a nation again. Are you hearing what I'm saying? But if God, with his spirit, would begin to move again on the hearts of the people and begin to awaken us. See, it's important to know that, that God motivated and directed. It wasn't a man who decided that the temple, that the, the need to go back to Jerusalem. It wasn't a man who decided it. It was, it was, it was not a a leader, a charismatic leader that came in and said, hey, we need to go back to Jerusalem. It was in the heart of God. It was in the heart of God. It was the work that was deposited by the heart of God. And it's because the scripture tells us this, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. Right? It's not men, but God wanted to get a hold of a people. And the truth is that if we're going to have revival and a move of God in this hour, God has to build the house. God has to build the house. Colossians calls us to this. It says this in Colossians 3, 2 and 3. Set, set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. For you died and your life is hidden in Christ and God. How many are thankful that our minds should be heavenly? Not earthly. How many are thankful that we're born again and we're not a part of this world? We are, we are, our mind should, not, should be on things above, not on the things of the earth. Why? Because our lives have been hidden in Christ Jesus. And so our mindset has to be different. 
And what Babylon and Persia was able to do was to change their mindset. But I'm here to tell you that when God builds the house, God builds the house. He sent the Spirit of God to awaken worship and began to awaken the Benjaminites and the priests. And he began to awaken them. All of a sudden, there's this unsettling that is going on. And all of a sudden, now they have a desire to see the house of God restored. That's my prayer tonight. That's my God awaken us tonight. Awaken your worshipers. Awaken your leaders. Awaken your Benjaminites tonight. Awaken those, God. Awaken the church tonight. Let our desire, let our minds get back on heaven and get our minds back on our heavenly things and not earthly things. Let us not be seduced by the, uh, the, the empire that is around us and by the Babylonian spirit and by the spirit uh, of Nimrod that runs through this nation. But our mind is on Christ and Christ alone. When I began to think about this, I thought, my goodness, this is powerful. This is powerful. But I want to leave you with a couple of things tonight. Because the first thing that had to happen was God's work never stops. But in God's work, there's always certain priorities. Number one, the first priority that's always required of God in his work is the ability and the priority of worship. How many know the priority of worship is always a part of God's work? And it was amazing because what happened was when God stirred these people to return to Jerusalem, and when God stirred them up to go, we began to see a series of things that began to happen that was an outflow of their worship. Look in chapter 2 and beginning in verse 60, uh, actually look at verse 67, our um, Yes, 67, or 60, uh, 68. Verse 68, it said, Some of the heads of the father's house, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to erect it in its place. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold uh, dramas, uh, 5,000 menace of silver, and 100 priestly garments. So the priests and the Levites and some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and uh, the uh, Nethaniums, which was servants of the temple, dwelt in their cities and all of Israel in their cities. What began to happen was, the first priority was, the first thing that began to happen, they were willing to pay whatever it price it was in order to return the house of the Lord in the right relationship with God. There was no price in where, what they would do or what they would give in order for the house of the Lord to be restored. Do you know that, that, that you're giving and you're giving of your talents, giving of your time, giving of who you are, giving of your, your finances is, is a willingness to do whatever it takes to make sure that the house of the Lord continues to be built. Isn't that powerful? They were willing to give everything. They were willing to sell out and give everything. Price wasn't too great. Why? Because what they were desiring was the return of the presence of God in the, in the altar again and in the temple again where they can worship and feel the presence of God. What sacrifice will you make in order to pursue the presence of God? What sacrifice? Is there a price, Is there a price that'll keep you from the presence of God? 
Is there a price that will keep you from supporting the work of God so that men can be saved and men can be returned back to the Lord? Is there a price that you pay that we would be willing uh, to say, well, I'll go here, but I won't go here. Are you willing to give everything to Christ in this Nimrod hour, this Nimrod Babylonian Persian hour? Are you willing to give everything that God has put into your hands and say, God, here I am. I am a resource. Let me do for you whatever you call me to do that's a question for the church that's a question why because the spirit of God moved on them the spirit of God moved on them and they and listen it had been it had been 70 years since they felt the presence of God Go without feeling the presence of God for 70 years and let the presence of God hit you and I guarantee you you will feel a lot different and you will appreciate it more than you've ever appreciated it. Huh? How long can the church live in drought? How long can the church live dead? How long can the church live without the presence of God? How long can we live without seeing people get saved and come to this altar and seeing people transform? How long can we go without seeing the power of the Holy Spirit and God changing and transforming lives? How long can we go without seeing a drug addict transform? How long can we go without seeing a marriage renewed? How long can we go without seeing the bondage of sin being broken off of somebody's life? What price are we willing to pay? Are we willing to go to distance? Are we willing to, to step up and say, we'll, whatever it takes, we'll give to the kingdom to do whatever God wants to do? The church has lost its ability to sacrifice. It's lost its ability to really care. I told, I've said this scripture. It's a spirit. It's a scripture that God has given me for this hour. And I believe it. When lawlessness abounds, the love of many shall wax cold. And the Bible said, but he that endures shall be saved in the end. And the scripture, it means he that is preserved. Jesus was not talking to sinners. He was talking to the church. He said, when the love of many wax cold, when agape love leaves, when agape love is removed from the church, when agape, when we stop loving people unconditionally, when we stop, when the focus gets off of restoration, when the focus gets off of winning people to Christ, when the focus gets on us and not on, not on salvation, not on winning the lost, not on transforming the city, not on transforming our church or transforming lives, when the focus gets off us, then our love begins to wax cold. It begins to grow hard. We're unmovable. In other words, we look at people and we see their plight and we have no compassion. God help us today if we lose our compassion. Because here's what happens when you begin to, <laughs> I don't know, listen. Here's what happens when your life begins to wax cold. When your life begins to wax cold, you exchange your compassion for judgment. You no longer have compassion on people, you begin to judge people. You know why? Because pride has entered into your spirit. And you have got the spirit of Nimrod on you. Nimrod was prideful. He decided what was spiritual. He decided what was spiritual. And I'm here to tell you, I'm not too sure that the church is not too far from living a life of pride. We've lost compassion for people. Well, if they'd have done, made better decisions, they wouldn't be in that mess. Well, maybe you're right. She wouldn't have married him. I told her. He crazy. He good for nothing. But she did it anyway. 
I told him when he was dating her, she's going to lose it. I knew she'd scratch his car all up and break his windows and throw his clothes out the window. Y'all laugh. I've been called to a house in the middle of the night and pull up and a girlfriend throwing his clothes out the window into the yard, screaming out like a mad woman at the midnight and her children standing in the driveway with fear wrapped around the boyfriend and she's cursing and she's taking knives and cutting up the bed, cutting up the furniture, breaking glass in the bathrooms, kicking doors in, putting holes in the wall. How would you like to date her? Right? And what happens is, is that sometimes the truth is we're not all perfect. We all have made bad decisions. We all have suffered the consequences of those bad decisions. I'm going to make more in my life and I'll make some before. But God, don't ever let me lose my compassion for those who, who you want to touch and who you want to move upon. Let us never become arrogant enough to where we say, God, we don't feel anymore. And a lot of times we don't feel anymore because we don't want to deal with the mess that comes with compassion. We don't want to deal with it because we know drama comes with it. We know all kinds, you know, and then there's the, the desire of the individual's will. Do they really want to be free? Do they really want to be transformed? Dear Jesus, help us. I don't ever want to lose my compassion. But what price are we willing to pay? Number two, I want us to see that in chapter 3, beginning in verse 3, I want you to see what begins to happen. First of all, the priority of worship, they were willing to give, that pay the price. There was no price that was too great. Number two, they, they, there was a readiness to worship. There was a readiness to worship. Look at verse 3 of chapter 3. It said, Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its, on its base. Now, there was great fear when they went into the land because they were walking into a place that was full of their enemy. Matter of fact, it was a racial tentious area. Because they had gone into an area, and I'll tell you in just a second, I'm not going to give it away. But there was a readiness to worship. They, they went in and they set the altar. They, they set the altar. They began to honor the feast of God. They began to make burnt offerings and began to be grateful and thankful and began to worship. Now, look at what they did. They set the altar and built the altar before they built the temple. Isn't that interesting? In other words, you would think that you would build, like when this church was built, they didn't come here and build the altar and then start building the church, right? They built the church, secured the walls, secured the roof, and then they built the altar. Well, you say that's backwards. No, no, no. Actually, they got it right according to God's plan because God wanted, because they put the priority first that they, that they wanted to work on the inside of themselves before they built the outside. And I'm here to tell you, worship always has to do with building the inside first before God builds the outside. Because worship always drives us to God. And if, you, if, we're ready, if we have a readiness to worship God, God's readiness will begin to move on our lives. And the inside gets transformed before the outside ever manifests the fruits. 
In other words, they, there was a sincerity about their approach to God. Because really, if they just wanted to build an image, they would have built the outside and wouldn't have cared what was being sacrificed on the inside. And that's what happens in churches is that we're more interested in what looks on the outside than we're interested in what's going on on the inside of the people that we worship with. But if worship becomes a priority in our life, God will work on the inside, and after he works on the inside, there'll be the manifestation of the fruit on the outside. Hallelujah. How many are thankful God builds inside out? How many are thankful God works on the inside, changes the inside, and then he begins to work? The worship, in other words, they, they put things right order. There was a right order in how that they done things. Listen, the church can never answer the call of God. We can never be a rapture-ready church unless we're willing to put order in the worship. <laughs> because it can't be all about what we gain on the outside as a church. The most important thing should be what we're building on the inside of people. And I'm telling you, in this hour, most ministries are building people for what they can get, not working on who they are. Come on, y'all. Y'all know, mail in your $5, and you will get your prayer water. Throw it on your head. Say a prayer. Thousands of dollars will come. Why? So that you can feel good on the outside. But God said this. God said, you worship me with your, li- with your lips, but you're really broken cisterns that cannot even hold water. And the priority of the church is we have to understand that the priority of the work of the Lord begins with worship. And it begins first being willing to do whatever it takes in order to do the work of God, but also understanding that the, that the church should be about building the inside so that God can use us and manifest his power on the outside. Why do you think we're doing life groups? Why do we think we put an emphasis on discipleship? Why? Because it's not about numbers. It's about the quality of the individual that you are building. And we are building some shallow Christians in this hour. All you have to do is watch how they have responded to this pandemic and you can see how shallow people's Christianity and how fragile people are and they lose their faith in the Lord. They lose, it's like they've lost their mind. I'm here to tell you there is a God that is working on the inside. It's going to change us. There's a God that's working. There's a stirring up. There's an awakening that's going on. There's an awakening in the house. God is going to awaken the church, and there's going to be a building on the inside. We're going to lay the foundation of the altar first before we begin our worship. Hallelujah. You say, well, prove that to me. All you got to do is look at verse 10. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3. It said, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the ordinances of King David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to God, to the Lord. What does that tell us? What does that tell us? It tells us this. It tells us that what they did, they put things in order. It said that they put everything according, according to the ordinances of King David, right? Of King David of Israel. 
In other words, they put an emphasis on order. They put an emphasis on the fact that everybody was in their place. Everybody did what they were called to do. Everybody understood what God required. Why? Because why does there have to be order? So that the presence of God can return. So the presence of God can come. So that men can be stirred. Men can be changed. The inside can be worked on. Hallelujah. Every priest. And they began to sing Psalms 136. And responsive. What a great song. That's a song we sing around here. They said, giving thanks to the Lord. In other words, part of the song would say, one would say, for he, for, for he is good. Or one, as Psalms 136 says, for, for the Lord is good. And the other response was, for his mercy endures forever. God is good, and his mercy endures forever. God is good, and his mercy endures forever. God is good, and his mercy endures forever. They had order in the house. I'm going to close with this as far as I can get tonight. But I want you to see something here. Beginning in verse 12 of chapter 3. In verse 12 of chapter 3, not only were they willing to give all, whatever the price was, was never too great. Secondly, they, were, they came with a readiness to worship chapter 3, but I want you to see something also. Not only did, were there a readiness to worship, not only were they giving all in order to worship, but there was a witness in their worship. How many know your worship should be a witness? How many know your worship, somebody should not look at you and go, you flaky, you weird, you crazy, Right? The world look at us like a cat with nine eyes. <laughs> right? Because I tell you, unbalanced Christians who say one thing and live another do not produce a witness. Their worship doesn't produce a witness. Right? Doesn't Acts, the Acts tells us that we shall be witnesses. The word is martyr, means representative. Representative, if I could talk right. Representative. Their worship had a witness. Look at verse, look at verse uh, let's go to verse, uh, verse 11, the second part of verse 11. It said, then all the people shouted with a great shout, and they praised the Lord because the foundations of the house of the Lord was laid. They were worshiping. They began to worship. They were worshiping. The building hadn't even been finished yet, but the inside, the altar had been built. They were worshiping, verse 12, but many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers of the houses, the old men who had seen the former temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. The, the older men, who were these men? Who were these older saints that came out of captivity? They were, those, they were the ones who, who were born who were born before the captivity. They were the ones that saw the old temple. They're the ones that saw Solomon's temple in all of its splendor and all of its glory. They're the ones that saw the gold and the silver and saw the order and saw the majesty of Solomon's temple. 
They're the ones that saw when, when Solomon laid the foundation of that temple. They, they saw all of, the, all of the splendor of what could or what was and what could. And now they were weeping because now they saw the destruction of what is. But they began to weep because hope came back in them when they saw that the altar of God was rebuilt again. And it was like an energy that entered a generation before. In other words... Worship will re-energize and strengthen those that have come before us, right? But God said it this way. God said, hey, the last temple had gold and splendor, and the problem with Israel was they got their eyes on the gold and silver, but this temple is going to be plain. It's going to be plain, but the difference is the old temple had the Ark of the Covenant. This temple is going to have my presence. (laughs) Woo-hoo! Hey, hey. I'll take his presence over the splendor and the glory any day. I'll take his presence over the opulence, over the outward appearance, over all that looks good, all that is good, but inside is dead. I'll take the presence over image every time. Huh? A rapture-ready church? Rapture-ready church is a church that pursues the presence, not his presence. (laughs) Hey, the splendor is good. The provision is good. The gold and silver is fine. But it should never, it should never trump the presence of God. God said this temple is going to be different. This, the other temple was laid out to impress man. This temple is going to be laid out for the presence of God. Lord, help our worship tonight. Lord, let there be The work of God always begins with this priority of worship. Ezra knew there was a priority in worship before he could build the temple. Now I want you all to see. Now it said the old men shouted. And it said they began to weep when they saw the foundation of the temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy. Now listen. Many and then the others shouted for joy. Now you have this weeping and you have this shouting going on. You have this weeping and shouting. You have this shouting for what was done, God's goodness, and you have this weeping that God was restoring. Both of them come out of joy. You ever been so happy about something God does, you cry and you weep, right? (laughs) You ever seen somebody get saved and or something happens miraculous and you know it's God or God restores something that has been lost or broken or something that has been, been gone and all of a sudden, all of a sudden you begin to weep because you know it's something you prayed for, you interceded for. Could you imagine what these older saints had gone through, through the captivity, wondering if God was ever going to restore again, if God was ever going to bring back his former glory? Do you think there might be a generation that sits among us today waiting and waiting and waiting for for God and waiting and waiting and waiting for God. I'm here to tell you, can God will do it again. God will show up. We will see it and God will do it. One was shouting about the past, the other group was shouting about the future. Woo! That's why God so many times in Scripture says, remember, 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 remember. Why? Because God don't ever want you to forget what he has done in the past. 
That's why the charter members of this church should always be talking about what God has done. Why? Because there's coming a, there'll come a time when we rejoice, we can shout about the past, and we shout about the future. We shout about his mercy when we needed it. We shout about his provision when no one else, when we couldn't get it from anywhere but him. When only he could show up, when only he could do it, when only he could put it together, when only he could build it, when only he could send the right people to do it, we, we, we weep and shout that God was faithful, but also we shout and praise God because we know our future is great. Our future is wonderful. Hey. Right? And so the and it says here, it says, and the noise... And so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people for the shout, for, for the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard afar off. In other words, their worship was not just internal. Their worship had impact on those who were not there, but those who came in contact with their worship. What happens to a church when what happens in here affects what's out there? What kind of church? God will move on a church that'll take what he does in here so that them out there can hear what he's done in here. <laughs> and I'm here to tell you that the reason why most people don't come to church is because nothing's happening in here. So nothing's being heard out there. But when the Spirit of God moves, listen, Look at the very last part of verse 13. And the sound was heard afar off. The sound was heard afar off. That is an interesting word. It's used one other time in Scripture. That, that particular meaning, that Hebrew meaning. It's used one time, one other time in Scripture. You know when it was? The Bible said that when Adam walked in the garden in the cool of the day, he heard the sound of the Lord. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? In other words, the sound they heard afar off was not the sound of men. It wasn't the sound of something drummed up. It wasn't something they heard the sound of what Adam heard, which was the sound of the Lord walking through the garden in the cool of the day. They didn't hear the sound of men. They heard the sound of God, and they heard the sound of the supernatural. They heard the sound of God's power. They heard the sound of his anointing. They heard the sound of who he was. Listen, they've heard enough about us. <laughs> Anytime they start hearing about God, 
And it starts time they hear the sound of the Lord. Now it's time they start hearing the shout of the Lord. Now it starts time they feel the presence of God. Isn't it time they start hearing the sound of the power of the Holy Spirit flowing through this house and out into the streets and not the sound of men and not the sound of this one or not the sound of that one. They start hearing the sound of the call of the God as if he was walking through the garden in the cool of the day that was drawing men to him. God was drawing Adam to him when he walked in the garden in the cool of the day. He was drawing Adam to him. He was fellowshipping with him every day. Why can't the priority of worship and the work of the Lord be a sound that draws men to Christ, that draws us, draws men back to this altar, draws men back to the presence of God and not to a denomination, to a church or a church name or to a group of people or just a gathering of people that have an identity. How about drawing men to Christ, drawing men to Jesus, drawing men to God? Let the sound of revival fall out through this land and through this city, through this hour. Let them hear God. Hear God. Adam, would you come? Hear God. Let them hear God. Let them hear God. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Woo! Hallelujah. Let me tell you what worship does. It does three things I'm going to show you. Well, it doesn't do three things. It does one thing, but it shows it three times here in this passage. When we worship and we don't put a price on God, we're willing to do whatever it takes. When we worship and we have the right order and we worship and we have a readiness to worship, when we set the altar, we obey the ordinances of God, when we put our whole self in, when we build the inside that affects the outside, when we have compassion, when we live with compassion, when we walk in compassion, when our worship becomes a worship that is a witness and that is seen and that is known, and then when the priests are in order and when all of the things that God, according to his word, has been in order and there is a shout of the past, there's a shout to the future that those afar off can hear. Let me tell you, why does all that happen? It all happens because of what took place in verse 1. And when the seventh month had come and the children of Israel were in the city, stand with me if you would, stand. The people gathered, listen, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. <laughs> you hear it? What, what's going on? Why was the worship so effective? Why did the worship produce a sound that was heard? Why, did the wor- Why was there a readiness? Why was the altar ready? Why was there sacrifice? Why was the people ready to pay a price? Why? Because in the beginning, when they gathered together, they were seen as one man that had gathered in Jerusalem. They weren't seen as many. They were seen as one. <laughs> I'm telling you, when the church becomes and gets together as one, I, you know, let me just say this. I was so, I felt the presence of God sitting in that boardroom down in the city hall today with all them pastors sitting around and everybody having one agenda, which was what can we do to make where we live a better place? 
and there wasn't talk about I pastor this church or I pastor that or I have this many people or I can give this much or I can do that or my gifting is this or I do this or I'm this. I've been here more than longer than he and I've been and I've been here longer than you, Mr. Mayor. And I and if you'll look at me and you'll look at this and I can do this, and it wasn't anything about that. The presence of God there was there because there was unity that was gathered together in that house. And it was a picture perfect of what God's getting ready to outbreak in this city. I'm telling you right now, a move of God is coming. move of God is coming. You better get ready. You better build the proper worship. You better build the right altar. You better start letting God work on the outside so that you can move with God on the, in, on the outside. Let him work on the inside. It's time to get things in order. It's time to get the priests where they need to be. It's time to get, get, get all of the servants where they need to be. It's time for those who worship to be where they should be. It's time for the Judah to be where it should be. It's time for the Benjaminites to be where they should be. It's time for the Levites to be doing what they should be doing. It's time for the leaders to be doing what they should be doing. It's time for the pastors to be doing what they should be doing. It's time for the teachers to do what they should be doing. It's time for the servants to do what they should be doing. It's time for the singers to do what they should be doing. <laughs> It's time for leaders to lead. It's time for preachers to preach. It's time for... Come on, y'all. Come on, y'all. Revival's coming. Come on, get ready. Get ready, Liz. Revival's coming. Getting ready. You can't sit there. You Listen, you can't sit there. You can't sit there. Thumbs go, your, things are opening up for you. You can't just sit there. You can't sit in a church. It doesn't matter what church you guys attend. doesn't matter. You can't just sit there. You know why? The call of God is on you. And it may be a mission field. It may be a church. I don't know what it is. I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you. There's a sound that needs to come from this house. It's the sound of gratefulness for the past and joy for the future. Ha <laughs> ha. Woo. I'm going to quit before I run. Verse 9, look what it says. Jen Yahshua and his sons and his brothers, Cadmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah, arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God. First they gathered as one, then they worked as one. <laughs> Woo, come on. Gathering had to do with agreement of purpose and vision. You never go nowhere unless first you have agreement and purpose and vision. You can't even begin to work on an altar or a temple until there's agreement of purpose and vision. That's why they gathered, because they gathered under the same purpose and vision. This church will never, it'll only go as far as the purpose and vision that it has. It'll never gather more. It'll never gather more than it's ready Listen to me, it'll never grow larger than what the people allow the vision and the purpose to be. If you want to be a nominal church on the corner, that's, what, that's your purpose and vision, that's what you'll be. But if you want to touch cities, and you want to touch regions, and you want to touch townships, you want to win this city, and you want to win Scottsburg, and you want to win... Indiana, and you want to win the state, and you want to send people all over the world, a mission field, you want to affect a nation, you want to change people's lives, you want to impact people, if that's your purpose and vision, and you gather as one, God will bring more people in here than it can be seated, and it's not about the people that he brings in here in seats, the, the question is, how many are getting it on the inside so they can flow on the outside, 
The problem the church doesn't grow is because we're so worried about what's on the outside that we never get God to work it on the inside. You want to grow this church? You start witnessing and sharing Jesus with people. It's not all my job. I release it tonight. Let me go. Let it go. You can't build a church on preaching. It helps. But you can't build a church on preaching. You have to build a church on vision and purpose. You have to build a church on people who are willing to gather as one. <laughs> I tell you, I'm, I'm preaching a little better than your amen, but that's all right. I'm not offended. But then they gathered and overseed the work. Somebody's got to lead, right? Somebody's got to make a call. Well, pastor, I don't agree with everything you do. Somebody's got to make a call. Well, that council, somebody's got to make a call. Stop fussing and cussing. And get on with it. Because when they got them all together and they got them in unity, it said they overseed the work and the building of the altar. It wasn't just one person. It was a group of people that came together as one. They had purpose and vision, and then they did the work. Somebody's got to oversee the work. And then look at, look at, look at the final one in verse, verse 11. Look what it says. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to God, for he is good and his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout. Now listen. They, all the people shouted with a great This is what it says in Hebrew. They all shouted in unison. In other words, the sound, even though the sounds were different. Listen. Listen. This is good. I'm telling you. You ought to tweet this. Even though the shouts were different and the sounds and, the, and there was weeping. And there was shouting. The Hebrew means it was all in unison. But though there was different, different expressions of sound, it all came together as one sound in unison. Isn't that good? You know what that tells us? That God can take the many gifts of a church and the passions that are in people's lives the concerns that are in people's lives, the shouts, the different, the different giftings that are in people's lives, and we all can sit. Listen, the Benjaminites, the leaders, the ones who made the law can shout. Those of the tribe of Judah could shout. Those that were Levites could shout. Those that were, those that were priests could shout. All the responsibilities were different, all of them, but they all shouted together in unison. They all shouted together in unison. And it was a one sound that was heard afar off. Isn't that good? I'm just telling you. That's good. What if a nation came together like that? What if a church came? What if a city of churches came together like that? Different churches, different styles, different ministries, but the shout was the same. The shout was Christ. The shout was God. The shout was the presence of God. Woo! Hey! 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 <laughs> what could happen? What could happen? What could happen? Hallelujah, Jesus. I want to, I want to do this. Will you do this with me? I want to do it. I want to do it. I'm going to shout, for the Lord is good. 
And I want you to shout back, for his mercy endures forever. I'm going to shout it, and then I want you to shout it back again. And I'm going to shout it, and I want you to shout it back again. And I want you to shout it so the sound can be heard. I want you to shout it in unison. I want you to shout it like you believe it. Like, oh, come on, preacher. What are you doing? What are you doing? Why are you doing all this weird stuff? No, I am prophetically putting in your spirit the sound of heaven and the power of worship so that we can build an altar, that we can make worship a priority, so that we can rebuild again the house of God, that we can break the spirit of Nimrod and break the spirit of Babylon and break the spirit of Persia. Break the spirit of seduction that is on men and break the nature that Babylon has put in the hearts of every man. And when you shout it, I want you to have on your mind, I want you to have on your mind somebody lost, somebody that needs Jesus. And your shout is going to be a sound into their spirits. You got lost kids? Here's your shout. You got lost family members? I'm telling you, when I shout, Every lost member of my family is going to feel the vibration of that sound. They may not physically fear it, but they're going to feel it in their spirit. Got lost grandkids? Got lost? Yeah, listen, no, no people that need Jesus, no leaders that need. Listen, how many know our Congress and senators need Jesus? Well, we're going to shout. We're going to reverb the sound that comes from the house of God. This city's going to hear it. They may not physically hear it. They're going to hear it. Are y'all ready? For God is good. <laughs> For God is good. For God is good. I said God is good. All together, God is good and his mercy endures forever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I hear the sound of revival. I hear the sound of revival. I hear the sound of the move of God. Woo! Awaken us, oh God. Stir us up. Father, I just pray as we leave tonight, I don't want to close. I'm not going to. I'm just going to pray. Lord, Stir this house up. Stir this church up. Lord, call us back to you. <laughs> let there be a sound. Let there be a shout. Let there be, let there be priority in our worship. Let there be a priority. Let we lay the foundation of the altar. May our sacrifices be pure. May our walk in obedience and may we have order at the altar. May the blood of Jesus be primary. May salvation be primary. God, we pray. We pray tonight. Let our worship be a witness. Let our worship be a witness. God, forgive me for every misrepresentation I've given and everybody that I've hurt through my action where I've been, where I have, where I have failed to represent you perfectly, where I have failed to represent you. God, as a man and as a pastor, where I have failed to be pure and to be, and to be a representative of you, I ask that you forgive me. 
God, I ask that you make me a man that is a man that represents you, that God, that, that my witness, that my shout and my song matches up with my life. God, help us. Help us come back to the altar. Come back to repentance. Come back. We're going to break the spirit of Nimrod. We're going to break the spirit of Babylon in this age. Oh, God, help us. Help us tonight. Help us, Jesus. Help us be willing to pay whatever price is necessary. I refuse to be content in Babylon. I refuse to be content and comfortable. God, you did not intend for me to live outside of your will but to serve you all the days of my life in your house. Let your mercy come, your presence. We pray this prayer tonight in Jesus' name. And everybody said, come on, give the Lord a clap off for tonight. Isn't he good? Thank you for joining us for River Valley Community Church's podcast. If you feel led to give, you can click on the donation link in the description or visit our website at rivervalleymadison.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe or share with your friends. Thanks again for listening. God bless you.